Hello. It's good to be with you. So uh, I have a problem, and it's that I'm very punctual. And this doesn't sound like a problem, but it is. Let me explain. I don't know how I got to be this way, but I have a very high value in showing up on time to the things that I've committed to. So much so that if I am arriving late to something, I feel like there is this conflict waging war within my soul as I am driving to this place that I should be at by now. Uh, I hold myself to such a high standard of punctuality where it feels like if I am late, everything that I say that I stand for must be a lie. Like, I have no integrity whatsoever. It's like I have these mini identity crises. Like, if I am not on time, who am I? I don't know. And I have a one-year-old son, so this has been happening a lot to me lately. Um, But the problem goes deeper than this, because recently I've realized that this high standard that I hold myself to, I hold other people to the same standard, which is a problem. Like, I, just right out of the bat, I'm acknowledging this is not a good thing. I'm just being vulnerable with you guys here. Uh, so here's how it would typically play itself out. Let's say I'm meeting someone at 10 o'clock, and at... 9.59, a countdown begins in the back of my head, starting at 60 seconds. And as soon as the clock strikes 10, I begin making a series of assumptions about this person that I'm supposed to be meeting with. And I can break these assumptions down for you into four phases. Phase one, which starts at 10 o'clock, is called the benefit of the doubt. And it's in this phase that I try to assume the best of the person that I'm meeting with. Uh, something probably totally outside of their control has prevented them from being able to show up on time. And that's understandable. Maybe there was a traffic jam or they're stuck behind a train or they're having car trouble, or maybe they're like talking somebody off of a bridge, something that they are morally obligated to prioritize over this meeting that we had together. And that's great. Phase one lasts for two minutes. And at 10.02 begins the second phase. Phase one is called the benefit of the doubt. Phase two is just called doubt. And doubt is where I start doubting a bunch of things. Like, I doubt this person remembered that we were meeting today at 10 o'clock. I doubt something totally outside of their control prevented them from being here on time. This is probably their fault. They probably left late or or something like that. I doubt, ultimately, that they care about this meeting that we had together. Otherwise, they would be sitting at the table with me right now. Phase two lasts until about like the 10th minute past when we were supposed to meet. So at 10.10 begins phase three. Phase three is like a more extreme version of phase one. Phase three is called, maybe they're dead. Um, (laughs) This this is where I begin wondering if something tragic has occurred, and that is what is preventing them from being here. I mean, it's been 10 minutes, and I haven't gotten a text or a phone call or anything. Like, maybe they got in a car accident. Maybe they're lying unconscious somewhere. Maybe they fell asleep at the wheel. Maybe they've been kidnapped. Maybe they're dead. Um, Phase three lasts for about five minutes and ushers in the fourth and final phase, which is called, if they're not dead, they're dead to me. Um, 
Like I said, this is a problem. I'm working on this. I'm being vulnerable with you here. So it's in phase four where it's like, okay, it's been 15 minutes and I'm starting to question the validity of the relationship that I have with this person. I mean, if this person doesn't want to meet with me, then why do I want to meet with them? Let's not waste each other's time and just call it how it is. Like, I begin to wonder if they are totally aware of this meeting that we had and they are sitting at home laughing about the fact that I'm sitting here by myself and they don't care to even text me. I mean, wouldn't you even text me? And I decide that if this person shows up, which they probably won't, we're going to have a long talk about all of these things and work it out together. Now, the moment the individual walks through the door, all of this totally goes out of the window. And I realize how absolutely ridiculous I'm being and how all of these things that I have assumed to be true about this person is not true at all. And I really want you to hear me on this because it's likely some of you and I will be meeting together at some point in the future. And if you are late for any reason at all, I'm not going to ask you why. I'm not going to assume these things are true. Like I said, when you walked in the door, it just goes out the window. I'm working on this. But if you could just text me if you're late, like <laughs> that would help me like work on this. So I bring this up because last week, Pastor Allen, in his message, he talked to us about how in many ways the kingdom of God has come and there are present realities that we get to experience of God's kingdom. And that's amazing. But I think we all have a pretty good understanding that it has not fully come yet. There are still aspects of God's kingdom that we are longing for, that we are like we have been waiting for for a very long time, such as justice. And it's in the context of waiting for God's justice that Jesus tells us a parable. And it's in Luke 18, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 5. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." Now, at first glance, it would seem like Jesus is encouraging us to be more like the widow, that we should persistently pray for justice until God gives it. But that is not at all what is going on here in this story. See, I think a mistake that I tend to make and other people do too, when, when we read a parable, we tend to immediately put ourselves in the position of the person in the parable. But sometimes it's the story that is the point of the parable, not relating to the individual in it. And honestly, there's not a whole lot to relate to when it comes to the widow because she, she is so different in her circumstances compared to ours. But the ironic thing is, is when we have been waiting for justice, for God to bring justice for a very long time, as we are waiting for him, we begin to make some assumptions. Assumptions where if they were true, would lead us to believe that we are in the same situation as the widow. For example, 
When we have been waiting on God for a very long time, we begin to wonder and assume that maybe we are on our own, which is exactly the situation that the widow was in. She was on her own. See, back in ancient Israel, for a wife to lose a husband was an unimaginable tragedy because not just the grief of losing your spouse, but when your spouse dies for a woman in such a male dominant society, there's almost no opportunities for her to earn an income for herself. Her only hope is that her children would provide for her. And if she doesn't have any children, she is on her own. She probably won't even inherit her husband's own land. This is why the Bible has so many laws and regulations about how to treat widows with generosity and love and respect and kindness. It's because they are on their own. They have no one. Now, in this parable, even with all these laws in place, the one person who is supposed to be her advocate, the one person who is supposed to have her back and plead her case, the judge, he didn't care about her at all. She was truly on her own. And when we have been waiting on God to do something for a very long time, something we feel we are desperately in need of, we can begin to assume that we are, in fact, alone, that God doesn't care about me. And again, the context here is justice. And I have known people who have been waiting for justice for a very long time, people who have been fighting for custody of their own kids, People who have been cheated out of a business deal by their partner. People who have been seriously abused and mistreated by someone they should have been able to trust, only to see it get ignored and to watch their family just sweep it under the rug like it never happened. When we have been waiting for God to bring justice to our cause, over time we can begin to assume God doesn't care about me because he would have done something about this by now, right? The more we sit in this assumption, the more alone that we feel, the more that we believe that we are the widow, but we are not the widow. Look at what Jesus says in the next two verses after this, verse six and seven of chapter 18. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God Give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Won't God bring justice to his own people? To which Jesus implies, of course he will. We are his people. Guys, we do not have a judge who cares nothing for us. We have a father who loves us deeply. We are not the widow Furthermore, the widow is the exact opposite of our status because we are not the widow. We are the bride of Christ. We are not the hopeless, lonely widow. We are the joyful bride of Christ. And the outlook, the outlook and the perspective of a bride versus a widow, it could not be more different. A few years ago, when my mom died, I watched my dad transition from a husband into a widower. And watching him come to grips, coming to terms with the reality that for the first time in decades, he was alone. And he was pretty certain that he was going to be alone for the rest of his life. 
that was difficult to watch. Coming, him coming to terms with this reality of loneliness was hard. And this wasn't by choice. This is just the way that things worked out. Not long ago, my dad met someone, more like God introduced him to someone, and they got to know each other, and they fell in love, and they got engaged. And in this process, I watched my dad transition from a widower back into a groom, and watching the hope and the joy return to him, knowing that he had someone who loved him, that he wasn't going to be spending the rest of his life alone, that has been so wonderful to see. The outlook of the bride and the widow could not be more different. And we are not the widow. We are not alone. We are the bride of Christ. We have a father who loves us deeply. But simply knowing this doesn't necessarily make the waiting easier. There's more things we can begin to assume. One in particular that puts us right back into the situation of the widow. For example, Jesus pointed out that this judge has no fear of God. In other words, he doesn't care about right or wrong. He's not held to any kind of moral standard. He's not accountable to anyone. He can come up with his own version of justice if he wants to. So it's not just that he doesn't care about the widow, but he doesn't even care about her situation. As a judge, you would think, like, even if he had something against this person, maybe she was an ex-girlfriend or something, but just the injustice of her situation should compel him to move on her behalf, but it doesn't, because not only does he care nothing for her, he doesn't care about her situation. And when we have been waiting on God for a very long time to bring justice to our cause, we can begin to assume that maybe the same thing is true of him. Maybe the reason why God hasn't done anything is because he doesn't care about what happened to me. Maybe God doesn't do anything for, for what I've gone through because he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about the injustice that I've faced. And this is not a difficult conclusion to come to. Like, when an Olympic trainer molests over 160 girls, when a genocide wipes out tens of thousands of people, when someone walks into a school and kills a bunch of kids, and it seems like God does nothing, a question that I ask myself a lot is, does he even care? But he does care. Look at what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8. Again in verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And look at what God says in Proverbs eleven twenty one. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. God cares deeply for justice. His desire for justice is unmatched. He cares so much about any injustice that is experienced by anyone. He promises that he will bring justice to any injustice that has occurred. But if that's true, why hasn't he done it yet? 
I don't have the answer to that. God's timing is often a mystery to us. We just don't know. And I'm not trying to trivialize it with some insensitive line like God works in mysterious ways. That's not what I'm saying, but it is a mystery. That's just the reality of it. But in the waiting, in the mystery, there are a couple things that we can be certain of here. For one, justice is coming. It is not delayed. Nothing is holding it back. It is on its way. It will arrive. It is inevitable. Not only that, God is not slow to bring justice. Jesus says it is coming speedily. But it doesn't feel that way. But I think there's a verse that can give us insight into that. And it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There are times when I'm reading the news where I think, what on earth could you possibly be waiting for? But on the other hand, I know that if God brought justice, the minute an injustice occurred, I would not be here. None of us would be here. We wouldn't even have a chance, a chance to even hear about the forgiveness that Jesus bought and paid for with his sacrifice. See, there, there is an order to things that is deliberate, that God is aware of, that we are not given the full details of. But we do know for a fact that justice is on that list. It is coming. But there are certain things that must take place first because God is patient. And this can be difficult for us to understand. A week before my son Edison was born, my wife Allie and I, we had an appointment with our doctor. And the doctor was uh, talking us through what we should do once Allie started to have contractions. And he told us to time the contractions, and once they got between uh, three and four minutes apart, then we should go to the hospital. That's, that's kind of the, the cue to go to the hospital. But then he looked at us and he said, listen, every couple with their first baby gets this wrong. They get overexcited, and they go to the hospital too early. Now look, they're going to send you home, but don't be embarrassed. This happens all the time. You're not bothering them. They're totally used to doing this. I'm just giving you a heads up for when this happens. And I thought to myself, challenge accepted. I am not going to be one of those sissy, faint-hearted, overreacting fathers. We're going to time this. And when we walk into the hospital, they're going to compliment us on showing up exactly when we should have. We weren't too early. We weren't too late. They're going to say things like, wow, this must not be your first pregnancy. And we're going to hold our heads high in pride, knowing that we held it together. So a week later, Allie started having contractions. And I whipped out my phone, and I started timing these things with such precision. It was insane. And it got from like seven minutes apart to six minutes to five minutes to four minutes. And we even let it just like duck under four minutes just a little bit. And we got in the car and we drove to the hospital and we walked into the emergency room and they brought Allie to this room and they hooked up some monitors to, to her belly. And the nurse looked at the screens and she said, hmm, not quite ready yet. 
what? You've got to be kidding me. And I told her, but the contractions, they're three to four minutes apart. And she said, I, I know, but he's just not quite ready yet. Maybe go back home and in an hour or two, come back. I couldn't believe it. So in shame, we got back in the car. Just me. Allie wasn't in shame. She was in pain. Um, <laughs> we got back in the car. And we go home, and Allie goes through contractions for a couple of hours at home, and we go back to the hospital, and we go through the emergency room, and they bring us back to the room, and they hook Allie up to the machines, and the nurse looks at the screens, and she goes, not quite ready yet. Like, no, you've got to be kidding me. Like, Allie is in significant pain at this point. Like, the contractions are so intense. And she says, maybe walk around the floor for like an hour and come back and we'll check it again. It's like, walk around? She can't walk around. Like, she's doubled over in pain. So in this moment, watching my wife go through something to a degree that I have never witnessed in anyone before, I could not possibly fathom how they could not admit us yet. Like, how is it not possible for this to happen now? Our longings for justice are labor pains. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our hope is in a God who loves us dearly, in a God who cares deeply for justice, in a God who is bringing justice speedily. Though we can't see it, we hope in it. It is coming speedily. Does that make us feel better? No, not, not really. But that is the hope that we have but it is hard to hold on to hope in the waiting because waiting is incredibly difficult. And if we lose sight of these things, we can begin to respond in the same ways that the widow was responding to her situation. Look again at verses three through five in Luke 18. The widow kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The widow knew that she was alone in this. She knew that her judge didn't care about her. She knew her judge didn't care about her situation. And no one was going to do anything about it unless she did something about it. So she did. She started repeatedly persisting with the judge to give her justice to the point where she coerced him into doing what she had asked. The judge is concerned that she is going to physically attack him if he does not give her the justice that she is asking for. So out of his own self-interest, he does. 
when we have been waiting on God to act for a very long time, we can begin to wonder if God is not going to do anything about this, maybe there is something I need to do to get him to do what I'm asking for. If God is not moving, maybe there's something I need to do to make him move. And this is where we tend to go wrong with this parable. Again, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is using the widow as the model of the example of how we should behave when we're seeking out justice. But the widow is responding in the way that she is because she has a judge who cares nothing for her or her situation. And that is not our circumstances at all. But when we believe that they are, we can tend to respond like she does. Here's what this looks like for me. There have been times where I've been waiting for God to do something, pleading with him to do something, and he, he hasn't yet. And I begin to wonder, maybe if I pray more, maybe if I pray harder, maybe if I had more faith, maybe if I was more obedient and I turned this area of my life around, maybe if I was more generous, then God will hear me then God will care about what I'm going through. Then God will give me what I'm asking for. But prayer and faith and obedience and generosity, these are not spiritual currencies that we have to pay God before he'll care about our situation. Think about it. We do not have to bribe God into loving us he loved us before we even ever loved him. We don't have to bribe God into caring about our situation. God's heart for justice is unmatched. He cares deeply about our situation. But when we begin to view our relationship with God like this, it is a tragic misunderstanding of his heart towards you and the relationship that we have with him. A long time ago, someone told me a story about a friend of theirs who was given a ticket to go on a cruise. And this was really exciting to him because this, this person, he didn't make a whole lot of money. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He'd never be able to do this for himself. So he packs his bags, and, and he gets on the, the ship, and it sets sail. And a day or two into the cruise, during one of the meal times, uh, where everyone's eating together in this all-you-can-eat buffet, this man, he's sitting on a bench on the deck outside of the dining hall, eating a sandwich that he had packed for himself. And a crew member was walking by, and he noticed this, and he stopped, and he asked this man, why are you eating out here? Like, why aren't you eating inside with everybody else? And he explained to the crew member that he hadn't brought any money with him, and he wasn't able to afford the food in there. And the crew member looked at him, and he said, you don't need any money to eat that food. Like, it's all inclusive. It's part of the cruise. You can go in and eat inside with everybody else. The story has always stuck with me. Something about it is just really heartbreaking. Like, maybe I can picture myself eating outside and looking inside, thinking I am the only one on the ship that can't afford to eat with everybody else. Maybe 
you don't have a hard time at all accepting the forgiveness that Jesus bought and paid for with his sacrifice. Maybe you don't have a hard time accepting the relationship status that you have with God. But you feel like you need to pay extra for God's love and attention. That is also heartbreaking. The relationship that God has offered us and opened up to us is all-inclusive. He wouldn't have given us the opportunity to have that kind of relationship with him if he did not already love you, if he did not already care about your circumstances. We may wait for things like justice, but we never wait for God's love. We never wait for God's attention and concern for our situation. We have hope that he is bringing justice speedily. We do not need to coerce him into action. We don't need to pay extra for him to move on our behalf. Justice is coming. And with all these things, we do not need to respond in the same way that the widow responds. But if that's true, then why in verse 1 does it say the point of this parable is that we ought to always pray? Isn't that exactly what the widow is doing? Not quite. The widow is persistent because she is alone. No one cares about her situation and no one cares about her. We pray because we are never alone. We pray because there is a God who loves us deeply as his own children. We pray because he cares deeply for our situation and our circumstances and any injustice that we face. We pray because God is already bringing justice to earth. It is coming speedily. When we pray, we become connected to those realities. When we pray, we realize that we are not alone. When we pray, we sense God's love towards us. When we pray, we feel his concern towards our situation. When we pray, we feel hope stirred inside us that justice is coming. When we pray, we become connected to God as we wait for him to bring these things. In other words, we always pray because we need to be with God while we wait for God. We always pray because we need to be with God while we wait for God. Because waiting is incredibly difficult. Jesus even acknowledges that. In the end of verse 8, Jesus asks the question, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? At the second coming, when Jesus comes back, will we be full of faith? He asks the question because waiting is incredibly difficult. It is hard, and it is easy to begin to assume certain things in the waiting. But so that we don't lose heart, Jesus encourages us to always pray because we need to be with God while we wait for God. In mines, they store oxygen tanks throughout the mine shaft. So in the event of a collapse, any miners trapped inside have access to oxygen while they wait for rescue. 
So let's say that there's this group of miners trapped uh, in the back of a mine after a collapse, and somehow they're able to communicate with the rescue team. And the rescue team radios down to them saying, hey, we're aware of your situation. We know you're alive. Rescue is on its way. It's coming. Just hang tight. Even though the miners know rescue is coming, it's imminent and it is currently on its way. It is essential that they use the oxygen tanks. It is essential that they keep breathing while they wait for rescue because they are not in an ideal situation. In that type of situation, it's easy to begin to lose heart. And one of the first symptoms of oxygen deprivation is not being able to think clearly. And when you're in a disheartening situation and you're not thinking clearly, it can be, it can be easy to begin to assume that rescue is never coming and lose hope entirely and just slip into unconsciousness before rescue arrives. It is essential that they keep breathing while they wait for rescue. When Jesus tells us that we ought to always pray and not lose heart, it's like saying we need to keep breathing and not lose consciousness because we are not in an ideal situation. The hardships that we face, including injustice that we face, is disheartening to say the least. And if we were to stop praying, if we were to stop communicating with God who is present here with us while we wait for these things, it's easy to quickly begin to assume certain things about him it's easy to begin to lose heart and lose hope that rescue is ever coming. But when we pray, it's like taking deep breaths of fresh air while we wait for rescue. We may be waiting for justice and the fullness of God's kingdom to come, but we do not wait for his presence. We do not wait for his love. We do not wait for his concern. All these things are present, and waiting is so difficult. It is essential that we are with God while we wait for God. So there are certain things we're going to be doing at the end of tonight that give us the opportunity to do this. Um, for one, we're going to be worshiping through a few songs, and during those songs, we have the opportunity to take communion together during any point in that. Now, communion... The definition of communion is an intimate fellowship, which is exactly what we've talked about here. Communion, if you've been taking it for years, it's one of those things that's easy to just kind of go through the motions with, but I encourage you not to do that. Take this opportunity to be with God through communion and worship. But before we do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to pray for a few things. So if you would close your eyes with me. Sometimes when I am most discouraged, I need to ask people who love me the most so well if they actually love me. I just need to hear it from them. I want to give you the opportunity to ask some of those questions of God right now. And these are okay questions to ask. And I'm going to give you some space in between the questions so you can just quiet your heart and hear what God has to say to them. 
you probably won't hear an audible voice or anything like that, but God often speaks to the soul. He affirms us just in the core of our being. So just quiet your heart and pay attention to how he responds to these questions. So here's the first question you can ask God. God, are you with me? Father, do you love me? God, do you care about what happened to me or what is happening to me? Father, are you going to do something about this? Father, we thank you and we are grateful that we don't have to wait for the entirety of your kingdom, but you saw fit to bring your kingdom here while we wait for the rest of it. We thank you for your presence here tonight and as we go from here. We thank you for your love and your concern. We thank you for the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, moving in us, affirming our hearts. But Father, we are waiting. Some of us here have been waiting a very long time, have experienced things that are not okay that break your heart. Father, in the waiting, we pray that we would experience your presence because we need to be with you while we wait for you. We pray that we would experience your love because we need to be with you while we wait for you. We pray that we would feel the affirmation of your heart towards our situation. So Father, in these next few moments, we open up our hearts to be with you.